it didn't listen to me. It walked out of the thicket, it turned around and looked at me. They looked up and in this tree, there was a monkey man. And the monkey man jumped down out of the tree and started running away. And suddenly they're right in front of the car. He slams on the brakes and manages to stop and he's skidding because it's not quite, you know, um, gravelling. And for literally for about a second and a half, they just stood there because they don't know where to go. And you tell them panicking, they're like ripping up thing. Their, their, their face is like twitching. to Bigfoot Society, a podcast where we focus on cryptids, the strange, and the unexplained of this world. If you've got a story or something weird to share, send an email over to me at bigfootsociety at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support this show, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the Bigfoot Society. And now, on with the show. All right, Bigfoot Society, you've got the privilege of chatting tonight uh, with Mr. Henry Franzoni, from out in the Pacific Northwest. How are you doing today, Henry? I'm doing really well. Thanks for asking. How about you? How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm doing good up in my uh, recording studio, uh, chilling out. But uh, a few... Where are you located? I'm I'm located in central Iowa, believe it or not. So... (laughs) Talking about, so I want to make sure that listeners know a little bit about um, uh, what it is that that you've done over the years, and we'll get more into it, Henry. But um, <clears throat> if uh, if people have watched the the '97 documentary "Drumming for Bigfoot," people that have watched that documentary are usually super big fans of it. Um, <clears throat> then this is uh, the, the Henry Franzoni that's from that documentary. Also, uh, <clears throat> Henry has uh, written a book uh, in the spirit of Siaco. Uh, in yeah. let me know if I pronounce that correct. I tried to get the pronunciation. Did. I did. Okay, did. good. <laughs> um, and uh, he's uh, living in around the Portland, Oregon area. Uh, been involved with many different Bigfoot related things over the years. And uh, it's going to be a chat about that. Um, it's it's going to be a fun one. So, Henry, uh, anything else that we need to put in there to kind of paint the uh, paint what's going on with uh, the Henry Franzoni story? I'm a little different than all the other Bigfoot people. Oh yes, I love it. Um, the uh, Strange thing about me is that I was a Bigfoot freak in 1993 when mm-hmm. I was really obsessed for about five, six, seven years. I was really obsessed and I became a real biologist from my fascination with Bigfoot. So unlike most insane Bigfoot people, I actually became a scientist. That would be like one of the things about me that's weird. And then I worked for the tribes here in the Northwest all along the Columbia River for about 25 years. I became a government supervisory scientist, in fact, in this basin. So um, 
You know, imagine my surprise as I became, I had a career in natural resources management that developed from my interest in Bigfoot. Which is, it's fascinating how you were able to build a career that overlapped with that passion like it's just it's the coolest thing ever really and you refer to that a little bit in your um you were in the uh, documentary a flash of beauty you had a uh, an interview in that uh and you kind of refer to that a little bit in there as well but uh, i wanted to start off with a few softball questions kind of get the ball rolling um, so you're in the, you're in the Portland area. You've lived in there for quite a while, right? You've been in that Portland area. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I moved to Portland in 1974. Wow. So oh, I've been there a long time, but I moved out of Portland in the year 1997. Okay. That's really when okay. I left. I well. I moved to the periphery. I moved about an hour outside of town. I've always lived about an hour from Portland. Sure. And right now I live about an hour from Portland. I live in Washington and I live uh, down the Columbia River in a place called Oak Point. Okay. So I'm about, I don't know, 60 miles from Portland, maybe something like that. You know, but I'm, I'm in another state. But definitely that same area, Lower Columbia River area. I'm a river rat. I have stuck to the river. And um, <laughs> I still am still a river rat. So I I, I love that the Portland area is so beautiful. You know, me and my wife, we, we took the... We took a trip out there, of course, you know, one of the, the groups of people that after Portlandia was huge, we're like, oh, we got to visit it. Like everyone in there, in there, you know, did. But Portland's great. Yeah. It's 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 beautiful. Um, so as a person that lived there for a while, did you have any favorite restaurants uh, when you lived in that area or anything, um, you know, cool that you would you would do that maybe the tourists wouldn't wouldn't know about? I, um, yeah, well, there was, there was a lot of, there was a restaurant still is called Frank's Handmade Noodles, which okay. total killer, like the killer restaurant. Um, and, uh, I actually played a regular customer on diners, drive-ins and dives <laughs> when Frank's got onto triple D no and, way. Um, yes, Franks got onto trip, which spoiled Franks and turned it into two Franks in two different places and made them go much more high end. So, you know, just by doing a triple D appearance, yeah, it kind of yeah. messed up my favorite place, you know. Oh no. Yeah, yeah like so I'm like, oh man, that was but you know, <laughs> now there's two of them, you know, what can I say? But yeah, and there was always a place called Montage that I loved, which was totally the great hangout spot for late night musicians and stuff. Okay. Two in the morning. You know, it was like the great place. But now it's a food cart post COVID. So. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, it got scaled down. But yeah, there's there's a lot of like old school Portland stuff, Huber's, places like that, that people, you know, modern modern people don't know about but they're still there right. <clears throat> um did you meet guy fieri then 
No, no. Okay. Guy, okay. Like, guy was like this, um, you know, he was like three layers of people yeah, sure. away from sure. me, you know, like I, it, it was uh, evidently when he came to town, he had college friends he was visiting with. So all his producers and everything like just shot the whole episode. And then he just like came in and right at the end. Um. We're going to get, don't, we will get to the Bigfoot stuff in a minute, listeners, but this is just, uh, this is totally unexpected. And I, I just, I love that little tidbit about diners, drives, and whatever, 3Ds. Um, so if you watch that episode, you can actually see yourself in it, like you're in it. One word, I say something like, well, it's food made with love. Yeah. So That's like amazing. I actually have a line, a line that makes it into the Triple D episode. <laughs> I'm going to watch that tonight. That is so good. Okay. Um, you're talking about your, you know, you have so many years of, you know, being a musician. Um, you were involved with, you know, uh, Caveman Shoe Store is uh, the name of your your band. Um, I, I was talking to Mark Marcel about that at CryptidCon. We were discussing about how he met you back in the day and <clears throat> he was a big fan of that that band but you know through through your years of being a musician has there been a, like a performance with a, a certain person or just a certain night when you're performing that really stuck out in your mind kind of encapsulated like oh this is just just pure magic there, there's there's a number of them really you see i um I had the privilege of working with this musician named Fred Shalinor. He's a bass player and he died. Mm. And we worked together for 40 years. Oh, wow. And Caveman Shoe Store was one of the bands we had together. We had three different bands, actually maybe more like five different bands since we were kids. Since we were 19, from 19 to 64, I worked with Fred. Wow. Something like that. So um, this guy was just really one in a million as musicians go, and he was just inspired. And there were a lot of times where I'd be on stage with him and, you know, I, it would just be um, magic. Magic would take over. Hmm. And so there were, you know, luckily, fortunately, there were some recordings made of a couple of those moments, but. Yeah, there was actually this one, um, I just got this tape and I put it on my Bandcamp site. There was a gig I played at Satyricon in 1992 and our band couldn't make it. So it was just me and Fred, but we were in the middle of recording a Caveman Shoe Store record called Caveman Shoe, uh, Master Cylinder. And so Fred and I had all those songs in our head and we went and had to play this club date and there were only two of us. So we had to fill in all the other parts ourselves. So we had to, you know, pretend that we were also playing the keyboards and the, this and then that and everything. And, and that particular performance, I still listen to it because like it was completely amazing. And, you know, I just, listen to it still to this day and go, Oh my God. You know, that was, there's those moments, right? Mm. There's a special magic yeah. moment. 
you know so yeah that was that was what there is one but that's one but there's a bunch of them because uh I opened for Ornette Coleman in France once at the Mimi Festival in 1994. And we played really well that night. And that was Caveman Shoe Store. But, yeah, we played really well. We had some good shows. We played some good shows, for sure, where we, you know, the standards I had were supposed to be able to, deliver the goods every time you play live. So if you made records, you have to be able to deliver what you do on the records live or everybody's going to go, oh man, they suck live. You know? So. <laughs> right, right, right. Is there a favorite uh, recording you that uh, if you, you know, uh, favorite album that you came out with? There may be tough three, top three or four. I don't know. Okay. It's hard. It's hard because I, 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 each I like them. I like a lot of them. I like most of them that I made. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. You said is yeah. the best way to listen to your stuff then on Bandcamp. You were saying if people want to check yeah, that these out. These days, you know, here in the modern world, um, I put my back catalog on Bandcamp. Yeah. Okay. You know, like I mean, that's sort of the thing to do now. It's the only place you can, uh, well, it walks the line where people can listen to it for free three times and then be asked to pay. And you can name your own price. You know, it's not like other streaming services where you get one ten billionth of a cent per play. Um, It's. And for my music, because it's old style music now, even though actually I'm still probably ahead of where music is now, but for me, it's old style music. You know, only old people buy CDs and things. So I'm I'm like, I'm good with that. I, I have like an old audience that I have to satisfy a little bit. That's awesome. That That's yeah, that's really cool. Um in the book, uh, The Oregon Bigfoot Highway, uh, of course, you're part of that group. Uh, the Clackamas, Sisqu- I knew I was going to mess it, Sasquatchians, right? Um, in your bio, it's referenced that you were raised in northern New Jersey. Um, do you have any interesting, it's also mentions the Pine Barrens, which I'm from the East Coast originally, and I know a lot of weird stuff happens in the Pine Barrens. Um, did you ever have any weird stuff happen that in, or did you go hiking in the Pine Barrens or anything like that? Or was yeah, this, I, a, went in yeah. the Pine, I like lived in the Pine Barrens at oh, the wow. time. after a while, I was about the only place in New Jersey I wanted to be. Um, but no, no, you know, oddly enough, I met people who told their experiences that were really cool, but Nothing, ha- you know, for me, no, I didn't have any uh, anything weird. And I went to the other weird place in New Jersey, the Ramapo Mountains. Oh, tell me about the Ramapo Mountains. Well, that's on the northwest corner, and there's it's similar to the Pine Barrens. You know, the Pineys live in the Pine Barrens, right? Right. The Jackson Whites live in the Ramapo Mountains, and they too are kind of a remnant 
Indian tribe, Tuscarora Indians, Hessian soldiers. Oh, wow. Um, you know, some British that were escaping New York City, some Dutch. And then they went up there in the Ramapo Mountains and got isolated for 150 years since the Revolutionary War, basically, which is what happened to the Pineys and the Pine Barrens. So it's the same kind of super creek, creepy zone. And, you know, it's got banjos playing and it's deliverance. And, <laughs> oh, no. You know, it's in New Jersey, you know. So <laughs> I love that about New Jersey. You know, it's got the hood and then rich people and then like the Jackson Whites and then right. hood. You're like, man, where am I? You know, it's just, that's very born. interesting. I'm going to have to uh, to look up that area more, uh, the Ramapo Mountain area. That sounds that I'm going to have yeah. to look into that. Because most people, when they think of New Jersey and Pine Barrens, they're thinking of like the Jersey Devil. You know, that's that's what they're bringing up. But well, that's certainly one of the big stories down there. You know, that is definitely probably the main story, right? But there's a lot of Sasquatch sightings. Oh yeah, you know, in Jersey. Pine Barrens and up in like up, up along the Pennsylvania New York border, up in the corner there. No doubt. No doubt about it. Um, I'd like to talk about, so let's start talking about what brought you into your, into Bigfoot in the early 90s. And I know that it has something to do with an experience at Skookum Lake in 93, correct? That was the very first one. Yeah, that's what okay. sucked me in big, big time. Okay. That led to today. Wow. Um, I, I had an idea that um, the Sasquatch thing was secondary the very first day because what I was doing was I, I had moved to a place called Linton, which is a neighborhood in Portland, Oregon. And if you know Portland, Oregon, it's this strange little neighborhood on the very, very northwest tip of Portland okay. along the river, right on the riverbank. And it's far away from all the rest of Portland. It's just like a little finger that sticks out along the river and goes way up along the river. And so I was looking into the history of where I lived and I saw that a chief, a uh, Chinook chief named Casino, had his winter camp there. And that's why it was there, you know. And I was like, well, you know, this is Chief Casino's thing. And so then I started looking up um, the Indians that had lived in this winter camp. And I found a story, the famous story that everybody sees Paul Kane wrote in. Uh, I, I forget. Wait, hold on. Cat interference. Oh, no problem. <laughs> get, down, get down, kitty. Get down, kitty. Okay. Sorry. No, no um, sweat. The uh, story basically was about skookums that lived up on Mount St. Helens. He want, he was a painter, and he wanted an Indian guide to take him up the top of Mount St. Helens, and no Indian would do it because the skookums lived there. And they were cannibal hairy giants. And they lived at Spirit Lake up at the, get down, kitty. Kitty, get down. 
And so I said, wow, you know, that's really fascinating. And then I realized from reading this story that it took place on the shore right in front of my apartment in Linton. Oh, wow. And I was like, I was like, wow, you know, that they were talking right here about this skookum that lived on top of Mount St. Helens. So, of course, at that time, which was 1993, everybody had heard stories about Sasquatch up on St. Helens. I mean, that was kind of a, you know, a, the standard place everybody said they lived around here. So I went, wow, you know, this must be about Bigfoot. And that Skookums must be Bigfoot. That was my big insight. Okay. So I found a place called Skookum Lake. And I read about the history of the name. Because Oregon has this great book that lays out the reasons for everything being named what it's named. So it's got a great place name dictionary available. And in this dictionary, it basically said, well, it's called Skookum Lake because that's where the evil god of the woods lives. And I said to my wife, or it was soon to be my wife, wow, we got to go there and camp. You know, we got to check out the evil god of the woods. Totally. See if he still lives there. I'm yeah. like, hey, let's see if he still lives there, man. Let's go. <laughs> so it was a joke, right? And I went up there and... Before I got to Skookum Lake, I ran into Bigfoot, okay? When I was a quarter mile away, but I didn't see anything. But what I what happened in brief to me, the very first moment I ever went out there, was a electric force field whacked into me, made all my hair stand up on end. My wife immediately passed I'm going to take a nap and just passed out on the front seat next to oh, me. Oh, man. My, it was dead silent. All the crickets stopped chirping and went dead silent. Henry, are you still there? That's a little weird. Uh, I'm back. That was really weird because right when you that were telling really that weird. story. I know. Everything I know. just wigged you. out, dude. Yep. Listen, wow. Let me tell you, they're listening, man. Oh, so, my goodness. The thing is, is that this, um, my starter motor was blown. The force field that made my hair stand up on end blew my starter motor. And we were marooned there and had to stay. And the smell went away and the force field went away. And my wife woke up all at the same time. Really? Like like two, three minutes later. Like it was like for three minutes, I'm like getting, I feel static electricity, you know? And, um, and so I said, wow, I don't know what Bigfoot is, but that wet dog smell made me picture in my mind a giant hairy thing, you know, like. The smell was what gave my mind the picture that, hey, this must be a, a big, hairy giant, the Bigfoot that we all hear about all the time. Just power of suggestion uh -huh. in a way, you know. But, I mean, it was a strong suggestion. So I, after that very first encounter, I was like, well, that's what people call Bigfoot 
but it's certainly not a wild animal. <laughs> I said, I don't know what they think if they think that this is some ape running around out here, but you know, no ape has a force field and blows my starter motor and knocks my wife out and the whole shtick, you know, and the crickets seem to know all about it because they just went quiet. And then when uh. it left and the smell left, they woke up again. You know, it was like the other animals were not so freaked out. They were like, that was my opinion at the time was like, it seemed to me that the crickets were, Hey, we'll just shut up and then we'll start again. Big deal. You know? Right. But that being the very first moment that I ever encountered Bigfoot, I didn't encounter Bigfoot, but, Oh, and I didn't see a damn thing either. What it, you know, there was nothing to see. Right. Um, so, uh, this is what led me down the screwball road. Um, a month later, I went back. And my wife and I camped out and stayed up all night. And I was like, okay, let's stay up all night and watch for Bigfoot. And uh -huh. I was disappointed when instead of Bigfoot, a UFO came out of the ground below me. And okay, this we was not the UFO take off in front of us. Whoa, really? Yeah, really close too. Like we could see the details on the you know construction. <laughs> we we uh, it was we were we were on the top of a valley ridge between two valleys, and it came out of the bottom of one of the valleys and rose up in front of us. And then hovered in front of us. So we got like this really good 20-minute look at it. Well, it wasn't 20 minutes. It was maybe two minutes. But That's a long um, time. It was a long time. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was very close to where the starter motor got blown out. You know, I was maybe a quarter mile from that spot, less. You know, I was right. I was in the, near the same spot. And then it got super strange in the morning because we went down to see where this thing came out of the ground because we could see exactly where it came out of the ground. And we checked these landmarks and we had all these things. And we said, OK, so if we get to this spot where these trees are, you know, it's right over there. So we we drove around logging roads to go there and. When we got there, in front of us was a government SUV oh, with boy. two men in black and a woman in red, a woman in red. And the two men in black started walking towards us. And they looked just like the classic cliche. They had really? sunglasses, tall and thin, walked awkward, white shirts, shiny black shoes. It was like... Uh-oh. And so I looked at my wife, who didn't know anything about the men in black, and I said, hey, those are the men in black. we got to get out of here. And um, <laughs> she right. said, okay, totally. okay. You know, I was like, man, hold on. So I, I threw it in reverse, and I just, like, jammed out of there. You know, I had a, my van. I just, like, went on the gravel and just took off. 
So um, since those three things happened basically in the same spot in the Cascades of Oregon, the first month I ever looked for Bigfoot, like the very first month I ever looked for Bigfoot, I was like, wait a minute, what the hell is going on? Like, honestly, what is going on? You know, so wow. I, I had a problem because every time I told people that story, what I just told you, yeah, nobody believed me. Nobody believed me at all. Everybody would tell me to, you know, don't sit, don't tell that story. Don't tell people that. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it happened to me. Sorry. No, nah, dude, tell that story. That's an amazing story, Henry. I love that. That's well, that was cr- the wow. first month. That was my first month of looking for Bigfoot. Your first month. Holy mackerel. Yeah. The very first month. 1993. August 1st. 1993. 1993 was the first date. September 1st, 1993 was the second date. And uh, I will. those dates are etched in my mind because that's what sucked me into Bigfoot completely, where I went, wow, whatever's going on, it's really, it's deep, man. <laughs> whatever, whatever is really going on around here, it's deep. That's all I can say. So it's, if I was to, if I was to ask either of you at that time, um, you both would be in agree that, yeah, you both saw a UFO. Um, yeah, because, yeah. you know, that was part of why we knew it was real. Because the thing is, is that at the moment we saw it, we we saw it, right? And it came up and it was dead silent. And it was silver glowing white for most of it and then down at the end like an ice cream cone it had an orange half ball and the orange half ball suddenly glowed a lot brighter and went and my wife said jado genesis did take off you know she said wow it looks like jado like it looked like it was getting ready to okay yeah yeah and then it did. It just squirted way up into the sky, right? Wow. And so right after that happened, the weird reaction that your mind has, and both my wife and I had the same reaction, which is you just pretend it didn't happen. Like suddenly you're like, I didn't see that. No, that didn't happen. Really? I mean, your brain down it's just like i don't know i didn't see that but then my wife said this one thing she said it was near and then it was far well and for some reason that triggered the whole memory and we both went wow we just saw a ufo right in front of us come out of the ground that's (laughs) amazing have there been uh sightings in that same area that you've heard of or or similar things over the years after that or yeah, see, after that, I myself had my own little um, network of Boy Scouts. Okay. That okay. I would, in the summertime, I would always talk to these Boy Scouts that would camp at the Boy Scout camp up there, and I'd always go, keep your eyes out for orange balls, man. Orange That's balls, awesome. Man. Keep an eye out. And so they would tell me things, you know, after the summer, at the end of the summer for like, 94, five, six in there um, for the next three years, I'd get reports from all these kids 
because I uh, uh, well, that was when Ray Crow had the bookstore. He had the Western oh. Bigfoot Society bookstore. Yeah, so totally. I would meet all these kids at the Western Bigfoot Society, and then I'd recruit them in my hey, keep an eye on, That's look awesome. out for orange balls up there, man. I knew a lot of, and then I went back many times. Up until '96, you could drive up to Skookum Lake, but after the flood of '96, okay, all access was cut off. You have to hike 16 miles now to get there. Really uphill, yeah. So it's way more inaccessible post '96. Um, but up until '96, yeah, I had like a lot of. I saw orange balls up there a bunch of times. I had more encounters with Bigfoot up there. And I never saw one, but definitely interacted. Um, I had things, well, things would happen like this, where I was driving up there, once again in my van with my wife in the passenger seat, and suddenly... In my right ear, I heard like somebody was trying to get my attention. So I turned towards my wife like she was doing it. But at that exact millisecond, she was turning towards me. Oh, no. Because someone went in her ear. And she said, and we both said what to each other at the exact same instant. And then we both freaked out because we realized that someone was playing with us telepathically. And we were in a van with closed windows. So, um, you know, that kind of thing happened. That was maybe a mile from Skookum Lake, okay? Oh, man. And that was maybe spring of 94, you know, like a little later. But, yeah, over time, I've had so many experiences that are – that's how it started for me. Um, Yeah. No, the thing is, is that, yeah – yeah, I mean, I I had a today. I've had like twenty five encounters or something, but I, I I don't count them. I don't even think about it. it. It's different now for me. And when you say so, you're having you know when you're going certain places, things are are happening to you from an outside uh, force um, of some of some sorts. Um, that's an interesting term, inside yeah. or outside. You know, right. I don't know. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> that, it's, don't know. It's, yeah, it, it's um, people. If you're new to to all this, I really, really suggest that you go over to Amazon and you uh, look up Henry Franzoni and you you read his book because it's really interesting. Um, it, it's available uh, as. Uh, I think it's available in a few different formats, but it's a very interesting read. Um, and also it's a great resource as well uh, because Henry makes all these incredible maps of all across North America that have to do with different uh, names like Skookum, Spirit Lake, um, uh, all sorts of, you know, monkey related things. It's just very interesting. I don't think there's any other resource that has done that. Uh, to the extent that that Henry did, so it's a it's a good resource to have at your disposal as well. I want to make sure I get that little uh, plug in there for the book. It's it's really quite good. 
I'm going to have to do an anti plug. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, it, when I wrote that book, it was the best I could do at the time. Sure. Looking back at it today, I'm like, it's 95% correct. Okay. But 5% totally wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, the map part is is solid, though, yeah, right? The map, like the, part's totally, the, maps, you know, the map the map part, is solid. Yeah. Well, that was basically an extension of the story I just told you about. Yeah. Figuring out Skookum Lake, I ran with that idea and found every Skookum anything anywhere, and then I chance. went beyond that and found all the words I could find in English or in various say Hapton or Salish or Chinook or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ran with that idea to like an absurd degree where I tried to make a database of 4,000 spots that had been named for something like that. But, you know, it's an interesting experiment because one can look at place names just like sighting reports. They're almost the exact same thing. Mm. When you get a sighting report, you don't really know if it's true or not true or if it's a hoax or not. Right. Sure. And very much with a place name, if it's named Bigfoot Springs, you go, well, maybe it's named because somebody saw a Bigfoot there. Maybe right. it's named as a joke and it's a hoax or this or that or it's marketing or sales or, you know, that kind of thing. So you don't get much more than a sighting report with a place name, but it's a clean data set because it's pre any media mention of Bigfoot or Sasquatch or anything. Sure. You know, these place names got laid down a long time ago. So you're looking at an interesting data set. That's, that's what I really thought would people would find interesting in that book. And I guess it still holds. Yeah. And I, I didn't like the maps people made. So I was like, man, you can make better maps than that. There you go. Yeah, they're good. They're good. What what was what's the 5% that you would change? I didn't really understand the physics of how Bigfoot does what Bigfoot does. Okay. Well, I, don't, I didn't even understand what Bigfoot was at all. Okay. And I didn't understand what I was. And so that gives you a big sort of room for error. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Yeah. There's plenty of error room there because I, I have I have a much better theory of of how it all works now and and I didn't have that before I didn't really I didn't really understand how they could uh, do what they do well how the stories I'm just telling you I didn't really understand how I could get hit by a force field that blew my starter motor and. Sure. telepathically somebody could you know talk to my ear you know i um but now i have a sense of how that might work you know so it's different and that's awesome I wrote that book before i had that sense of how it might work so that's what's different so is then is that a thing where there might be like a follow-up uh book where you kind of set some things straight or that's what i'm doing Okay. Absolutely. Pardon me, cat interference here. No right? problem. <laughs> cat interference. Banger, you got to get down. Get down, bang, bang. Okay. Here we go. Yes. Well, you know, <clears throat> yeah, video 
Mm, yes. Welcome I love. It's awesome. I love it. The cat thing. Yes. That one of the things I'm doing in this. I'm just sure I have everything that I want to say, but it's not organized right. You gotcha. know, but it's all. I, I'm I'm almost there. Damn it! I've been struggling with it for years. Honestly. Oh, wow. Well. I had to wait for the right time. I, there's mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of things that had to um, had to wait before they could you could talk about them. And I'm surprised, but it's okay to talk about them now. And I got I the it. word, so it's okay. Well, there's plenty of people that'll be waiting for that uh, that follow up to come out. Uh, just so you're aware of that. Before we, there's one thing I want to circle back on. So you said that you were having a lot of Boy Scouts bring reports to you. Did do you have that stuff written down? Is that like old records that no, you don't have it anymore? Okay, I'm just curious. What what um once I did because okay. once upon a time I assembled a database for the Bigfoot Research Project of 485 sighting reports in Oregon and Washington. Sure. And I helped them put it together. And we, you know, back in the day, back in 93 to 98, we had uh, employees who would go out and see what they could learn, you know, because almost all the sighting reports we got were so old that, you know, the witnesses weren't alive anymore. But whatever we could learn, from going to the site, we learned, and we we did um, GPS coordinates everywhere. We made a database, and okay. I had all of that once as a very valuable thing, but then I gave all of the questionnaires that we made people answer to Autumn Williams in, like, the year 2000. Okay maybe 1999. Sure. I thought she would be a good inheritor of all of that material. So I dumped, at that point, my wife was nagging me about the boxes in my closet and saying, when are you going to do it? And I was like, yeah, screw it. You know, get rid of all that Bigfoot stuff. So I got rid of my, all my Bigfoot artifacts. Oh, wow. I got rid of, and I purged myself in the year 2000, all my casts, hair samples, photo, everything. I was just like, man, people, man, man. So, yeah. um, you know, I had a real epiphany of uh, hatred. And, well, not really, but I was pretty sick of how mean everybody was in the Bigfoot world and the whole, you know tenor and arguments and you know the bigfoot scene i was just sick of it but um yeah i had this thing where i i I got rid of everything and then by 2008 i had so accumulated so much more stuff anyhow yeah that wrote that book you know and i was like well geez i might as well write a book because you know i got all this new stuff since i got rid of everything and um, that's kind of what happened again in that I was going back and looking and going, gee, I don't have any of that stuff anymore. And no, I have all new stuff again. And I'm like, no, no, I'm moving on. 
And right. um, Fair but, yeah, Fair it, it, I'm not going to be so rash anymore. It was foolish for me to throw all that stuff away. I should have kept it. Cliff Berrickman gave me a single cast to start okay. my collection again. Oh, that's so nice. Yes. Yes. So I have one cast now to begin over with the, but for me, that end of the phenomenon was never the interesting end. I was okay. much more interested in the uh, civilization, let us say. Mm. You know, I was much more interested in how Western civilization views it, how all the other cultures view this phenomenon, and how they differ radically. Um, and I'm very interested in the physics of how Bigfoot turns invisible and does all this stuff. And so I'm really like an engineer and a, um, well, I've worked, I'm, I'm a warrior for the tribes, a contract warrior for the tribes. I've found, well, in a sentence or two, for me, Bigfoot seemed to be the, um, caretaker of all the other animal species, including us. Bigfoot seemed to have a caretaker role in nature. And I became a true conservation. I wanted to become a true conservationist, in part because I kind of sensed that that's what Bigfoot was, that Bigfoot was a true conservationist in its own way. And that may not be the thing that strikes other people, you know, when they go looking for Bigfoot, and they go, whoa, man, you know, it, it, whatever. But for me, that's what struck me. And it turned into a career of doing conservation work for the tribes. So my it's interest so cool. in Bigfoot just yeah. sort of naturally led right there because that's what I saw when I went looking for Bigfoot is the whole question of what is their role in nature? I mean, we're people, right? And there's animals. Right. Well, what is their function? You know, that, that became like, that was the important question to me. What's the function of Bigfoot in nature? Like, I mean, mm. what are they doing here? Right. They're obviously, I didn't have a problem with they exist or not. Right. Sure. I, <laughs> right from the first second, I was like, well, something exists and it ain't an animal. And so I thought the caretaker thing was what really struck me. They just struck me as caretakers. Of, of. And then, of course, I read a lot of other cultures' views of Bigfoot that in the years since have really confirmed that for me that a lot of other cultures see Bigfoot as a protector <clears throat> and as a person, a type of person, but as a protector of the tribes. They're, they're seen as, uh, you know, I, it, look, it appears to me that I wasn't too far off in my guess about them being caretakers. Yeah. Western civilization may not know that, but many other <laughs> cultures do. It's it's very 
it's very interesting and i'll be super interested to see how you're what what else you have learned over the years uh you know when that that follow up is able to be I'm, fully I'm really I'm trying yeah, to get it's it going to be I'm awesome i'm hoping oh I'm wow hoping a month or two i can do it i'm just trying that's awesome really i'm trying i'm really i'm i've been talking about it a long time i've driven people crazy cuz i've never finished it it is so weird I, I was reading a book on shasta mount shasta the folklore and legends yeah. of it by uh, D.W. Nafe, I believe is the name, and you're you're called out pretty good in it, uh, Henry. You're the really? the stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. It's you're referenced in it. Uh, it's very interesting. I was like, I was just I'm reading this at the same time. This is weird, but uh, yeah. When he's talking about uh, different uh, Native um, American uh, things around the Shasta area, so it's it's it was very cool. I was good. really fascinated with that subject of all the native american um spirit animals mm. for lack of a better term or the spirits that the native americans communicate with <laughs> that that's the topic that's really interesting to me and bigfoot is one of those spirits by the way so, so you you you're uh so you view uh, Bigfoot as like a, a spirit slash spirit animal or more of like a, a type of uh, spirit or I know it's a. No, can, I would say a huge from thing. my point of view, Bigfoot is both. Okay. Bigfoot okay. is animal, flesh and blood, mm-hmm. and also has puzzling powers that lend it to uh, being a spirit as well. But Bigfoot's no different than you or I. And now I understand much more of how it all works. We are the same in our construction also. Very interesting. So, yes, we are We are clearly related. Mm, gotcha. I want to rewind a little bit. Let's go back to 93 <clears throat> and uh, reading in your book. There's a part where you, you talk about becoming a member of the board of advisors for uh, the Bigfoot Research Project headed by Peter Byrne. And so I'm just how, you know, we've got the 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 thing that happened to you and your wife. How does that like how do you meet Peter Byrne? What's that connection there? How did that all start? That because that's how. quite the connection to get. That's 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 how the. Okay. The way it happened was that happened to me August 1st. Okay. So August 2nd, I went to that bookstore. I remember seeing the Bigfoot in the window, and it was Ray Crow in the Western Bigfoot Society, but over in the St. John's neighborhood in Portland. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember this. I remember this bookstore, and I, my wife and I were like, yeah, remember that bookstore that we always see? Yeah, let's go. Let's go see what's going on. So I went in there and I introduced myself to Ray Crow and I told that story to Ray Crow, like okay. my wife and I did. For some reason, because I don't know what, he and Peter Byrne had just moved to Hood River, where Parkdale technically, where he was setting up the Bigfoot Research Project. And and Ray Crow was like at that moment, he was like, Well, I should tell Peter Byrne any 
Bigfoot sighting reports. Oh, so you, you got to. Peter Burr, you got you know, to. And he's like, well, Peter, you know, this guy's in my bookstore and he just, you know, <laughs> told me this story. So um, moments later, I met Peter Byrne, you know, like, wow. and then um, it, uh, it just one thing led to another. I, I you know, I was just, fa- I was so, he captured my imagination, mascot and his jungle hat. And oh, exactly. Stuff, you know, really. I mean, I was, I was like, wow, this is awesome, you know? And, um, and then I'm like a useful, I don't know, I'm useful. So um, within a short time, I had, uh, Made a web. I had made websites for Western Bigfoot Society Bigfoot Research Project. Yeah. Uh, Ron Moorhead, Patty Patterson, Roger's wife, and Renee De Hinden, and I made all these websites because I was a computer geek, right? And so I was like, "Well, I can help you, Peter, with your Bigfoot Research Project. I know all about. Com- I'm good with computers, man." So. I did all, and then I did all this GIS work for him. And then I did all these databases that we're talking about. And, you know, and I was like, yeah, yeah, man, I can help you do this shit. So then he invited me to be on the board of advisors, like a couple months later. Okay. Gotcha. I, um, was a, a, and and there I was till the very end until the bitter end, (laughs) until the bitter end. Yes. Um, but he helped me get into this thing really well. He, vis-a-vis what we were talking about before, right? he bought me a CD of the genus database of the geographical names information system. Oh, cool. Because this was the beginning of the internet and it wasn't yet sure. online. Today, it's just a website. But back then, it was a CD that you had to buy. And Peter Byrne bought that for me to help me get totally into the place name thing. So, like, he encouraged me like that. And that helped me, you know, just get sucked. And then I, then when Jeff Glickman came in and took over, I still hung around and helped him write, you know, his book, his great paper of 1998, the towards a resolution of the Bigfoot phenomenon. Uh-huh. And I just like, in that paper, actually, you'll see, pardon me, a lot of my early place name stuff where I'm like, wow, well, you know, look, I look for this name and I found this. You know? <laughs> right, right. So, you know, I mean, I was all, it was so semi-scientific, but th- the basic idea was, was a, a sound idea, as it turned out, because... I went to a lot of those places and had encounters. <laughs> That's awesome. It's, it's so, so cool. Um, because so the, the website thing, so I'm a, I'm a computer guy. Uh, and I just found that fascinating that you were the guy in the mid nineties that was making the websites for these guys, like it's so listed in your book. It's like, you know, Peter Byrne, Renee DeHinden, Moneymaker, Chris Murphy, uh, Ray Crow, Ron Moorhead. And that, that's just, 
man, that's awesome. Like, and also, so also you made the, the website for Patty Patterson too? Well, we made one, but she didn't ever want it to go live and then we killed it, you know, but she, she made one because we had a relationship. The, uh, well, there was a lot of good that came out of that period. And okay. one of the things Peter Byrne is the best at is raising money. Peter sure. Byrne had more money to look for Bigfoot than anybody and could obtain capital. And so other Bigfoot researchers really resented him for that because, mm. you know, that ascot, it worked. What was it? He had the money to pay Patty Patterson $20,000, digitize the Patterson film from her okay. copy. Okay. From her copy, which is the only, it's the, it's not the original, it's the first copy. And she has it in a bank vault. And for, by giving her 20 grand, she let us digitize all 952 frames. That's awesome. To Hinden, Peter Byrne raised the money to pay him 20 grand. So we could use something like 37 of his still photos because to Hinden owns the still rights to the Patterson film. Right. Patty owns the motion rights. So the Hinden, we paid 20 grand to, to use these in towards a resolution of the Bigfoot phenomenon. And Glickman, I think, ended up only using about 15, 16 frames from the film. But to Hinden was really anti-scientist. And so he refused to let it be published in a scientific journal that was written into the contract. It was absolutely free. really yep you know like he depended really you know that's the intersect the thing about bigfoot is the intersection of commerce and science yeah and wackadoodles and everything else it's really it's an interesting problem man you know really that's so intense you went from zero to 60 literally it, in the way that you went from having this encounter and then you're just thrown into the crazy stuff with like Peter Byrne and Renee DeHinden. And um, yeah, I mean, you actually met like Renee DeHinden. Renee was a good friend. Actually. Okay. Of all those, of all those people, I've met them all. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, Grover and um, John Green and Renee and yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I, I, I knew them all, but Renee was a friend. Okay. Renee and I became friends because, in my opinion, Renee was, he was the smartest of all those guys, in my opinion. But that just, you know, that's just what I think. I liked him the best, whatever. I liked him the best. He was the most fun. So you're you can saying. You sit around at the gun club drinking with Renee, telling Bigfoot stories oh, late into awesome. the night. And it was a lot more fun than, you know. Oh, that is so awesome. So you were actually hanging out with Renee, like, like you're like hanging out like buds. Yeah, the last three, four years of his life. Wow. I oh, hung out wild. with Renee. Yeah, because, you know, I was not the typical coop. I mean, sure. I helped put 20 grand in his pocket. So... 
I was I obviously you. not, you know, easy to dismiss as a woo-woo guy. Right. Well, they didn't dismiss me, really. That's the thing is, in the end, those guys were slightly more open-minded than you would expect. I have told variations of, you know, Bigfoot's a spirit and a flesh and blood animal combined. Mm. Um, I've told variations of that. It's just now I understand how how it works a little better. And it's like they are both. We're both. Everything's both. Don't worry. You know, it really is. It's the diff- it's soul and physical body. Right. Are there physics yet that describe the soul? No, there's religion that describes the soul. Sure. But I'm talking hard physics. You know, that's what that's what uh, helps. When you understand the physics of your soul, it is much easier to understand Bigfoot. That's what I'll say. Yes. That's a that's a that is an intense statement right there. I like that. Yeah, I like that, man. That's that's good. That's good. From from the years of talking, you know, you said you were able to talk to Renee over a few years. Do you are there any conversations about Bigfoot that that you can still remember or anything, you know, fun uh, that that stands out in your your memories or. Oh, yes. Yes. There's. um. Well, <laughs> it's, it's pretty hysterical, but yeah. No, the strange thing, you know, for me, Renee would, um, we'd talk about everything, right? Bigfoot, Mm. everything. He thought there was some kind of mental aspect to it. That's what he used to say. Really? When he was drunk enough and it was private and late at night enough and he would go, you know, there is some mental aspect to this thing. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that's I used awesome. To go, I used to go, wow, you know, Renee's actually got a clue. You know, like I used to, that used to really please me. Yeah. I'm Mr. Out There, supposedly, but I'm sure. not. But um, <laughs> Renee, Renee, had through experience brings you there. Like those experiences I told you about clued me into a different side. I always say people see different faces of the Bigfoot mystery, right? And it's really probably the experience you had is the face you see. And it's probably just that simple. And so I had a weird experience. So that's the face I saw was Uh weird. It's not this monkey walking across the street. It's weird, man. So um, I was very pleased when Renee and some of the really old guys through experience, because as you go along, weird things happen to you. I can guarantee you that sure. you can be you can see Bigfoot cross the road like another dozen times. But then one time, the 13th time, you know, Bigfoot stops your car dead in the middle of the road with his mind. And you go, wow, that's really weird. (laughs) So what I'm saying is, 
it seems to me that anybody that really looks and really tries and gets and goes the distance and does the work and gets out there and really does it, the closer you get to them, the weirder it gets. Gotcha. Like when you start to actually have experiences, they're not what you expect. And you're like, wow, I was expecting a gorilla. And, you know, and as time goes by, as you, <coughs> I mean, that's what I have observed in others is sure. over time, they get a little more open to the weird side because weird shit happens as they look, if they really look. And maybe it takes a decade or two, you know, I mean, it, it takes time before something weird happens. But I find a lot of times with those very old guys, that's all I meant to really convey. As uh, man, there's there. Okay. There's a lot. Um, I'm going to ask you. So, in this interview, I'll be asking some really like random questions. And if it doesn't hit, we're just going to go right past it. And it's more for me personally. Um, I feel like talking about Bigfoot. So yeah. Anything you want. So I'm in, I'm in Iowa, right? So I, I researched Bigfoot in Iowa and I found out that from a guy that I talked to who was involved with Bigfooting in Iowa in the 1970s, that Renee DeHinden actually came out to Iowa to talk to them. Did he ever, is that anything that he probably never mentioned anything about an Iowa trip or anything like that? If not, that's no, he never mentioned that. Okay. All right. No sweat. Um, Did you ever talk to Patty Patterson about the PG film at all? Did you ever get to talk to her about that? No, I just talked money. Okay. Yeah. You're just the guy putting the stuff together. All right. Cool. Cool. I I only talked money with her and then I talked websites with her, but yeah, no, I never, um, uh, no, I never once broached the subject. I, we, we discussed at length, you know, what her copy was exactly sure. and, you know, how much we would pay and, you know, how long we could have it and, you know, what we yeah, could do to it. You know, yeah. we, we went through the whole, we had to, it was complicated. It's a valuable asset. And, uh, oh yeah, you know, we uh, did the best we could at the time. But that project ended in tears. The and things happened. For example, we made a stabilized version of it back then. In 1995, we had this beautiful stabilized version of Patty Patterson's copy. Wow! And um, we just destroyed it. We didn't, you know, like at the end, it was like, oh, oh. you destroyed so, it. Well, it got destroyed. Yes, the um, well, yeah, because wow, from that project, there was a staff of three. There, Peter Byrne, a staff of three, and the board of advisors, of which really there were, you know, we were like volunteers, right? You know, and um, the board of advisors. We'd, we'd just sort of kibitz and show up and, sure. you know, we were just a pain in the ass. So um, 
I'm the only one that acknowledges that it ever happened. The rest of the staff has removed it from their resumes. The project leader after Peter Byrne has removed all mention of it from any of his uh, CVs or anything. Um, no one wants to talk about it or say a word. At the end of the project, we had 70 CDs with this digitized copy of the Patterson film on it. And one of these staff took 68 of the CDs and I took the first two, which I've lost since then oh, man. because I just wanted a memento right. of the first two. What the hell? And she buried them, you know, like she, none of these people she will bury them. Well, none of these people want to have anything to do with anything in Bigfoot whatsoever. They've scrubbed any mention of it in their lives since. So all of them have zero mention of ever having ever existed. Okay. I am the only human being who will talk about this project. Wow. (laughs) That is so intense, Henry. That yeah. Literally it it died in nineteen ninety eight was when I was right. And um that was that was the real death and uh so yeah 24 years 24 years later it's like that's crazy man i'm the last person who will the last one who will even but even at the time i wound up with everything that's a, that's a lot of what i gave to autumn williams okay. back then because I was the only of the people of the project. There might have been others who were. I'm the, I was the one really focused on solving the problem. Sure. I really wanted to figure out the mystery. I still do. You know, that, uh-huh. that's what motivated me is I wanted answers. I wanted to know what was going on. And so everybody kind of knew that about me. Like, like I was the true believer that was like, hey, I want to solve the mystery. The Patterson film copy, like I said, I only took the first two discs and one and the other staff member took the others. So. Oh, so hi, that was a, that was not a literal thing, right? Like they didn't literally bury them in the ground. Like it was just they. No, got she just. Who knows what she did? Okay. She divorced. She never talked to a Bigfoot person again and never acknowledged any connection to Bigfoot anything ever again with anyone. And wow. she moved off, got another job, married a guy, moved on, had a life. Wow. Good for her. Good for her. We'll let her, we'll let her have her life. Um, I do want to talk because the history of this, I don't think ex- exists anywhere is how did the documentary drumming for Bigfoot come about? Like what's the background of that? Was that your idea or? Yes. Okay. Um, The way that came about was, I better light this to tell you this story. (laughs) Because you see a guy named Anthony Wonky and I, Smoked joints, drank beers, okay, 
and drove all around the Pacific Northwest for nine weeks in a rental car, interviewing Bigfoot people all over the Northwest. No way. And scouting locations. And we had two tapes to listen to in the car. One was Schoolie D, if you know your early rap. And Schoolie D, one of the hardest of the heart. And the other one was Tortoise Head. And we listened to these two tapes and smoked joints and drank beers for nine weeks. Oh, that's amazing. And wrote the script. While you're in it. Oh, my God. Goodness. And we casted it, it too. It's so good. Okay. That documentary is one of my, it's my favorite thing because of the culture of the 90s and also like the way it's edited. Did you edit it too? No, those guys were, you see, those guys were masters. Anthony Wonky was the assistant producer and really he wrote the majority, but I, he'll tell you. It's my movie. I really wrote the majority. You okay. Know? Like he'll like we'll we'll disagree about who wrote the majority. <laughs> um, but we went through all. We met every lunatic Bigfoot person in the Northwest, and the idea was to cast interesting narrative characters. That's awesome. Yes. You were talking about like I went and introduced them to Peter Byrne. Okay. And to to Hinden and then to Grover Krantz and John Green, you know, I was like, Moorhead. I'm like, okay, you got to meet the the guys, you know. Right. So I introduced him, and thinking, one of these people is going to be the spokesman, right? Because we were looking for spokesmen. We were looking for who was going to be the main narrative character. So um, all those guys tell the same story. They give the same interview every time. It's boring. We don't want those guys. Right, right, and exactly. I was like, oh, okay. And they were like, yeah, no, we want you. You know, you'll, you're the main narrative character, and Larry Lund will be the secondary yes, main character. It's so good. You know, so, so we got Larry and me to be the narrative characters. And people don't know this is how that movie got made, but yeah, that's how it got made. And then we had what we were trying to do was to coordinate it with the Bigfoot research project so that when the big paper was coming out towards the That is intense. The first plot had, that was the big reveal was, okay, and here's the big scientific report. Oh, but, really? Yeah, that was going to be the uh, original okay. way it went, right? But Peter demanded way too much money. And Fair he's enough. like, well, you gotta you gotta pay me XYZ if you want to do that. And, yeah, all right. Is is Anthony still around? Do you know? He works for the BBC. See, the people that did that all worked for Channel 4 and the BBC. Oh okay. they were a lot of the pros. Norman wow. Paul was the head guy. Anthony Wonky was the second guy. John Waters, the guy that plays the cameraman, was 
David Attenborough's cameraman. Right. You know, like, and the cameramen we had besides him were of the same quality. And the sound guy was incredible. He got the best drum sound out in the middle of the woods because he had such high-end gear. It was staggering, you know, and they were all total pros that really knew what they were doing. And um, Norman Hall was in charge of that. But that team of guys, see, after the nine weeks, then they came and we shot it for six weeks. So it actually took 15 weeks and then it went to editing. And there's, you know, just like every movie, there's like five times the footage that you'll never see. Oh, uh, can you, um, I, I can't imagine the stuff that like is on the, the, the floor after the editing, like what's the stuff that didn't make it in? Oh, I would love to see, but Most you'll never it see did it. Not make it in. Most did not make it in. Oh know? my we, goodness. We went and, we went and picked those people because they were interesting narrative characters. You know, we were looking for quirky, the Brits, the British people in general, like the more, you know, idiosyncratic narrative character rather right. than, you know, American style, you know, straight ahead narrative character. You know, they they're they like idiosyncrasies. So um, I love making that movie. But like I said, we basically got drunk and stoned and wrote it and had a <laughs> Dude, <laughs> it makes us it makes the doc even better um who did the music for that the doc it's it's oh, really cool i don't music. know that was people norman hall and Anthony okay Wonky just people. whoever yeah. yeah i don't know who they were the music um, great the one of the one of the uh i guess you could say quirky characters in it that i just the howard hall guy in the goat yeah. mountain area whatever ha- think- do you know whatever happened to him no, but I think okay. he steals the show. I think he's like he's so good. Steals the movie. Yeah, he steals the movie. Howard. No, don't know what happened to Howard. You know, okay. and and I've one time I used to hang out where he lives was really near Skookum Lake. Really, not that far, like a valley or two over, oh, like wow. a valley or two over. You know, so I used to hang out area and then i i'd stopped hanging out in that area after 96 really after after that movie i stopped hanging out in that area so occasionally i visit the clackamas area but it's you know i I, my my um i set my stakes wider now yes do you remember any people that you had talked to in those nine weeks that didn't make the cut Oh yeah, yeah, millions of. Them. Oh man. Well, yeah, a lot because because see, it was like going down the list of all the people I knew. So there was a guy named Dennis Harryford, who uh, was a Washington State Patrol guy, and uh, he back then he didn't talk to. Um, Bigfoot people. He, 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 but he was actually the guy that the state of Washington would call when there was a Bigfoot incident at a construction site or something. Oh, wow. And so he had the greatest track casts and measurements and data collection of anybody ever. And 
I mean, he was the guy Washington called, you know, and he would measure the tracks and the stride and the this and the that and, you know, just do the straight cop thing. And um, he was a super badass uh, woodsman that the other job he had for Washington, the state of Washington, was they would call him when there was a prison escapee hiding out in the woods and he would track them down. No way. Yeah, so Dennis Harryford was this insane character that, I mean, I was just like, oh, man, you know, like, we got to introduce people to Dennis Harryford. Dude, what could have been? Oh, my goodness. But uh, that's that's just how it goes. Yeah, you know? and, yeah. no, and, and, and I mean, it's many, many years later, so I have – I have no idea what he's up to now, but I think now, like everybody knows about him, like, you know, moneymaker and the BFRO, you know, I think everybody's figured out Dennis Harryford exists. Um, yeah. But who else? Yeah. There was Datus Perry and really Datus. It was the only film ever taken of Datus and it's too bad. It was right before he died, but he was, he was my, one of my biggest influences, and he was a logger that lived in Skamania County and um, had 13 encounters with Bigfoot, as he used to tell us. Wow. And uh, mm-hmm. But he turned out to be one of the most insightful people and had the most valuable insights, in my opinion, you know, and he got completely cut. And then there were two Macaw elders that we interviewed, George All okay. and Frank Smith. That were their that was were their white names. And um they were 80 and got to interview them. And it was it was it was like this. It was like we went on and on and on about Bigfoot, 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 and um the only thing they would say was they'd say, well, you know, like 1947, a serviceman stationed down the road at the air base saw one, he says. And um, that you can find in John Green's book on the track of the Sasquatch, that particular okay. incident. Okay. And if you went to the tribal bookstore, they had John Green's track of the Sasquatch. And oh, that cool, was cool. the only Bigfoot story they would tell was, oh, that one that's in John Green's book, you know. Oh, and I was like, well, geez. So then I said, well, <clears throat> what about the little people? And they said, oh, the little people, well, they're in the next valley. You want to meet them? And um, no way. Then we got on to the sea monsters and they had seen this sea monster each of them had seen it three times in their life over 80 years and Nia Bay. And basically it was Cadborosaurus as the modern. Oh, cat, yeah. Caddy. Right. Right. Well, these, both of these elders described six different encounters they had with Caddy in Whoa. Nia Bay. And we cut all that. And I was like, Oh, oh my man. goodness. You know, I was like, Shit, man, we should have kept that, man. I know it wasn't Bigfoot, but, you know, really, there's people that would have been interested in that. <laughs> Holy mackerel, Henry. Oh, my goodness. 
wow, that's, I never would like, never would have expected all that. That's crazy, dude. Well, How cool yeah, and nothing to it that airmen saw it in 1947. That is, but I real, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Oh my god! But yeah, that's so all that's on the cutting room floor. I know that because um, those are the things I really missed, and I was like, "Damn!" Wow! You know, all those people died too, right? George All, Frank Smith, Datus Perry. Yeah, gone. So, they, especially if those guys were in their eighties back then, yeah, they're they're long gone. Yeah. And, yeah. But, wow! Thank you for sharing all that. I mean. It's like you can find a copy of that, an old VHS transfer copy of it on YouTube. And then it's on uh, the Tubi app. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's like this uh, streaming think, app. Yeah, that, yeah. The title changes. I think it, they call it. It does. Bigfoot yeah. Monster yeah. I think yeah. Bigfoot Monster Mystery is what I've seen it as on YouTube. But yeah. It, yeah. They, it just keeps floating around. That's for sure. It keeps like a bad penny it keeps turning up it's like if you know about it then you're and if you find someone else that knows about it it's like you're in this like special like ultra secret bigfoot club where it's like oh you get that 97 bigfoot doc then you're you're awesome that's how i look at it anyways but oh wow <laughs> it started as a joke from my friend arthur Purley, who said let's go play drums for bigfoot and Oh, wow. Get Bigfoot to come and check us out. And then one day, BBC comes to town, and I start joking around with Anthony Wonky about the idea, right, in that nine weeks of driving around. They're all like, yeah, that's going to be the opening scene. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so good, too. It is so good. <laughs> and I'm like, Really? I mean, it started as a joke. They're like, oh, man, that's the oval zoom in, you know, like they had just like it is, you know, and I'm like, wow, who knew, you know? So, yeah, it it wasn't my plan, but it did, did start in my head, you know, so. I love it. I then, love it so much. The ideas turns out also is sound as well. It, <laughs> you don't find Bigfoot, they find you. Turns out that's a sound concept. So very interesting. A another statement you made in your book uh, is you mentioned uh, making six sh six shows and making contributions to half a dozen books. I'm just curious, like, do you remember, uh, like, what shows were you involved with uh, making uh, and also well, or like contributions to books, stuff like that? The other big one was Sasquatch Odyssey. Okay. Right. Yep. Yep. Where, you know, that one. Then there was a German one that you, no one's ever seen. A little German vignette. Then there was an Australian one, no one's ever seen. A little vignette. Then I did In Search Of with Robert Stack. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Before Leonard Nimoy, you know, like early, early in search of 
Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Do you, yeah. do you remember the names of the German and the, you said it was Australian? Uh, okay. No, no problem. I don't even remember. I don't, rem- I don't remember the names. I remember the interviews and, and then there was another British one that disappeared. Another, like, some competitor of the BBC had to do an interview, too, if there is a competitor of the BBC. but it's Or maybe it's a competitor of Channel 4. But another crew came out and did another interview at the time. But I've never seen or heard of that one ever again. Actually, all three of those I never heard of again. There were three that I shot that I never heard a thing ever. It's very interesting. Uh, 2000 is where off. Year 2000 is when I said, I am not going to be a narrative character for the media about Bigfoot anymore. Thank you very much. Yes. And you just, you know, here I am eating my words 22 years later. And, you know, right. Here I am. But it's okay now. I'm retired. I'm 66. I'm at a different place in life, you know. Time to have some fun, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, in uh, the Oregon Bigfoot Highway, they taught. So you were listed as a Clackamas, Saskatchewan. Or, sis, that word is so dang hard to say. Sis, Sasquatchian. Sasquatchian. Okay. Um, one of the requirements is that you camp at least five days up the Clackamas or spend 200 hours of boots on the ground research. Is that something like, did you actually meet those requirements then? Um, yeah, without trying, you know, I, uh, okay. where the hot areas are after many years. And that's one of the hot areas. It's always been hot. There's always been shit going on over there. Yeah. And that's where all that UFO stuff happened and all that. Everything. I've had so many weird things happen to me over there that um, I maintain a network of observers to this day, but not Boy Scouts. But um, okay. See, I um, well, that's really an overstatement. I've been in natural resources management and the Warm Springs Reservation is border of the western border of it is right there, not so far from Skookum Lake, little further east. And um, Thunder Mountain, you know, that was all Skookum Lake's on Thunder Mountain and Thunder is a giant Indian in all the Indian stories. Okay. So the fact that a giant Indian lives on Thunder Mountain, exactly why it's named Thunder Mountain. I didn't realize that when I was looking at Skookum Lake on Thunder Mountain, and that's where the evil god in the woods lived. I didn't realize. Oh, wow. Well, if I looked at the mountain, it was actually named for Thunder, the giant Indian that's in all the stories. So, wow. You know, I didn't know that then. And 
there's a lot I didn't know. There's, there's a lot I don't know still, right? But the, the truth is, is that uh, I worked for four tribes for 25 years. Well, sure. more than that. I worked for really 20 tribes, but four main tribes, the Yakima, Umatilla, Warm Springs, Nez Perce. Those are the four treaty tribes, and I worked on behalf of their fishing rights, their fishing treaty rights, and I fought for their treaty rights in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and won a couple of cases. Okay. So um, I'm a warrior to defend the tribal rights to things like, you know, the fish and wildlife and animals, you know, vegetation. Well, I've had a whole career in it. And I had an annual contract with the Department of Energy who funded me for all those years to do this work for the tribes. So I've walked between, you know, the feds, DOE and the tribes for 25 years. I've walked on a tightrope. And right, I know those areas in Clackamas County now from a whole different perspective, like as the boundary of Indian land coming west. <laughs> and <clears throat> yeah, like I said, the thing is, is that I'm many tribal people tell me when there's when they have a sighting. Oh, wow. And I don't, I have not really spent, until recently, I haven't spent much time outside of Indian country. For the last 25 years, I spent a lot of time in Indian country because I've been doing salmon restoration work. I've been out in the woods and in the wilderness for 25 years on tribal land, generally. And I've been a scientist for the tribes for 25 years and One of the interesting things about that movie that you're talking about, the Bigfoot Monster Mystery, is that when tribal people saw that movie, what they got from it, the takeaway they got in many cases was that I would not hurt another animal. I don't know how you can read that into that movie, but they were like, you wouldn't hurt another animal, would you? And, and all these different tribal people would come up to me and say, I saw that movie. You wouldn't hurt another animal, would you? And I go, no, you know, I wouldn't, as a matter of fact. <laughs> you know, that's right. And I couldn't figure out how they got that from watching that film. But that happened to me all across Indian country, and it acted as a calling, as a, as a white card to allow me access all across Indian country because everybody saw that movie in Indian country. Oh, it. wow. Yeah. And yeah. they all liked it. And <laughs> I didn't know that. And so everybody knew who I was. The moment I started going out in the middle of Indian country, and they're like, oh, the Bigfoot guy. Oh, you. you know. But <laughs> because that movie, I made real friends with Indians. You know, I worked alongside yeah, made a lot of good friends. I have good, a lot of good friends today. 
that are tribal people. And the real born and raised on the res tribal people, you know. And um, sure. And so that's a network for me. My connections and my reputation is not something I can share with other people and say, oh, exactly, oh, yeah. yeah. Tell them you're my friend. And right. But uh, the thing is, is that I get filled in. If anybody on the res sees Bigfoot, I usually That's hear awesome. about it. You know, like on, on those four reses and maybe even more because <clears throat> I just spent the last four and a half years working for the Cowlitz tribe. So, um, and everybody knows that I'm that Bigfoot obsessed white guy. Sorry, did you say that you have you have uh, contacts with Midwestern tribes as well? Yeah, I just I um, I, I I'm I'm always hesitant, but hey, it's come out in public. Yeah, I have that's, various that's cool. Skills. That's cool. I have various skill sets. One of my skill sets is um, payment system architecture. Oh, for, well, you're a computer guy, right? Yeah. So yep. you'll get it. So um, I take QA contracts coming out of K Street for WIC systems and food stamp systems. Sure. And I do QA for the feds and for the tribes in this okay. case, when they're building a new WIC system. So a new WIC system and a new food stamp system just got put in in the Midwest across 10 tribes. Uh-huh. And it was a two-year contract I had to do QA on putting on the system as it got put in because a strange card I have to play is I'm an expert in payment system architecture. You know, because... Like you, you know, I'm a computer geek, right? But right. I'm an yeah, old, yeah. I'm an yeah. old sixty-six year old computer geek. I you know, like, I love uh, that. A lot of the listeners uh, are like, I don't care, but I'm like, dude, I'm I love that stuff. So I totally get it, man. Yeah. So I'm my thing is all about uh allocation of resources. I want sure to help allocate resources in a fair way. I think society should allocate seed resources in a fair way. Yeah, my soapbox. And so uh-huh. all the work I do and all the jobs and careers I've had have basically touched on that theme, which is trying to make this society allocate resources more fairly. You know, like that's my shtick. That's my that's my game. But it yeah, it comes out in different ways. And mostly, yeah, I've worked, you know, I've worked for these 10 tribes and I couldn't talk about it while I did it. Most of the time I can't talk about what I'm doing. I have to be right. buttoned up exactly. strategic and effective and I cannot talk, but now I'm post retirement. So I can actually sure. say, Oh yeah. You know, like I've been working for all these tribes for years, you know, and um, <laughs> I have a lot of contact. Well, I have tribal friends and, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the tribes. You know, sure. I really, really am just, it's a total privilege to be able to work for the tribes like I do. And I'm just 
filled with gratitude that I got to do it. You know, I really, I'm just, it, it's too, it's how I feel. I know people are like, oh, you want to be Indian? <laughs> you know, I'm like, no, no, it's, no, no, it's no. really on another level, no. folks. Yeah, <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> that is cool that you were able to, to make, yeah, you know, you made, really a huge difference in the lives of so many people through that. So that's, it's very cool. I think, um, <laughs> as we start to, to kind of wrap things up a, a little bit, um, do you have any words for those that are getting into Bigfoot, uh, the younger generation, um, the current Bigfooters today? You, yeah, you broke up for a minute. There, oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, do you have any any advice for the current, you know, up and coming Bigfoot generation of the Bigfooters today? Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> think Chewbacca. OK. Don't think Field and Stream. Field and Stream. No. Chewbacca. Yeah. Um and you're going to be a lot closer. I, you know, my, my advice has not changed. Do not underestimate the intelligence of what you are facing here. Mm. It is. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know what advice to give them. Um, the way. One of the really good things about Peter Byrne that I need to mention mm -hmm. because nobody really mentions this about him. Sure. But this dovetails into advice for the, the now people. Peter was different than all the other guys back in the day because he was really into Jane Goodall. Mm. And he was really into this approach of, we should try to communicate with them like Jane Goodall does with the gorillas. And we should, you know, use that approach, the whole friendly communication approach. And he took crap from everybody else for being that way. And he stood up to, to Hinden and Krantz and Green. Everybody was like, get out the gun, you know, whatever. And, um, that was the right idea, but he shortly abandoned it and went to this biopsy dart plan where he was going to shoot it with a biopsy dart and get a DNA sample because he needed a DNA sample. And, you know, and then they went to the slightly more violent approach, which I wouldn't recommend even today. Sure. Um, <clears throat> but not for the reasons because because they're people. These things, these creatures are people. The closest thing you can understand is people. If you get to know them, you realize they're people. Where have you been? You know, uh -huh. and so all of the others, that I would really say is why Peter Byrne's approach was really enlightened and ahead of the game. And pretty much all the, there's, there's, there's way too much violent, you know, there, I understand the mechanist viewpoint and the materialist 
I must get a body, you know, give it right. up on the body. <laughs> no one, I'll point out <clears throat> an interesting omission, <clears throat> pardon me, in the data that we have right now, which is nobody's really ever touched the body. We've looked at the body a lot of times, and it looks like ours, and it looks like it has flesh like ours, and it looks just like our, uh, like sure. one of us, like, you know, see muscles and shit, but nobody's touched it. And yeah. from the strange reports I hear of those that actually touch it, it's rock hard and doesn't oh, wow. meet your expectations about skin. So, um, there's a lot going on with the body. It's different than ours, is my point. It looks the same as ours, but functionally, it's different. There's something really different about it. And everybody sort of moves past that problem. Nobody really gets to touch the body, hold the body, even touch it with their hand. <clears throat> More literally, well... Here's a story, which sure. I may. Yeah, definitely. I had a friend, uh, a tribal friend, who always wanted to find out what happened if he shot a little person in the head. And so he was hunting, okay. and he saw a little person, and he shot it in the head, and it rang like a bell. Really? really loud like a bell and he had really bad luck for the next 15 years and then he oh, died wow. oh man so that's more advice for the youngsters don't do that yeah guys <laughs> let's not do that <laughs> that's good advice um henry it has been an amazing chat with you. Thanks so much for, for taking a few hours out of your uh, Friday and Very, chatting with me. Been a fun time. Um, please take a few minutes. If there's anything, you know, I, I always let guests at the end, if there's anything they want to plug or, you know, websites or anything, um, by all means, no, go ahead. Um, God, you know, I'm just getting back into this public Bigfoot world. I have no merch, but one day maybe I'll have merch. You know, I have a, a, the working title of my book is Super Force Seattle. Nice. But could be subject to change. I don't know if I like that, but that I'm trying to get that out in two months. Hopefully I've been telling people for years, I'm going to finish it. I really am close to finishing it. And um, yeah, finally I'm going to write, my uh what i think about bigfoot that's awesome oh great. man like everybody really needs another take on bigfoot oh my god so. i mean i'll read it dude i'm i'm <laughs> i'm i'm pumped for it so good stuff well thanks henry for hanging out and uh you have a good rest of your night there you too thank you very much
Thank you for listening to Bigfoot Society. If you like the show, please review and rate it five stars on iTunes. Hit the share button and send this episode to all your friends on social media. Subscribe to Bigfoot Society wherever you listen to podcasts. It doesn't cost a thing. Pick up a Bigfoot Society shirt or enamel pin over on our Etsy page and people will tell you all about their Bigfoot sightings when you wear it. At least that's what people tell us. That's what happens. If you'd like to become an official member of Bigfoot Society with a membership card, a community of like-minded individuals, and extra content each month, then please consider becoming a supporter of the podcast by going to www.patreon.com forward slash the Bigfoot Society. Thanks for listening.